I want to just look at an area that bothers a lot of us and we don't often know why it is we get bothered. It's the area where we have to look at the devices of Satan. The devices of Satan. If you'll turn, please, in your Bible to the second letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. That's 2 Corinthians and chapter 2. 2 Corinthians and chapter 2. We read in verses 1 through 17. Now, I don't want to take the time to read that, though I'm quite sure it would be better if I read it than if I just talk about it, but we'll be talking about part of that as we go through. But 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 17, but look at verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, as you go through this whole chapter, you'll read about how Satan is very active. The problem with so many Christians is that we've had crossed, <clears throat> excuse me, a sort of a crossover of theology, and we've been mixed up in our theology. Some people, for instance, have taught that if you don't live for the Lord Jesus Christ, then obviously you were saved once and now you've fallen away. Some of us, and I'm not one of those that think that way, but some of us thought, now that can't be accurate because salvation is eternal. And if it's eternal, you can't have it today and lose it tomorrow. So logic alone brings us to the place where we have to accept that when we receive Christ as our personal Savior, we are saved. We are born again. We are given a newness of life. Once we understand that, then something else happens when a person, as it appears, falls away. Either they are really born again and they fall away, they slip, as John puts it in the second chapter of his first epistle, they slip into momentary acts of sin. That is, they do not habitually and perpetually and continually, says the Amplified Version, commit this act or these acts of sin. Sin is not a habit they chase after. So they slip, they fall into a momentary act of sin, which may have far-reaching consequences. The, the, to identify the, the individual sin, the specific sin, doesn't matter. The fact is that they slipped. So they were born again and they slipped. The other reasoning here has to be this. They were never born again. They were never born again. And I have a thesis and a proposal to put in front of you. Do you really feel that all the people that say they are born again have been born again? And we have to come up with this answer, at least I believe as, as a pastor who sort of views a flock of sheep and has for many a year. As we view people, we understand one shocking fact, and it's this, a strong delusion is amongst our people. Not necessarily just here, but throughout evangelical Christendom. And many a person who thinks they have had some sort of religious experience really just had that, that's all. A religious experience. Now, that seems almost to undercut some of the thinking and some of the things that you might like to latch on to. But we have to take away the false tears. We have to remove the false feelings. 
And we have to get to the very nitty-gritty. And it's very hard to deal with this unless we understand from whence it all comes. So let me stick with my notes so that I don't ramble for too many hours and keep you too long. The, the subject, and we'll have the notes of this for next week. We'll gi I'll give them to you. We'll have them out. But while this, this is titled The Devices of Satan, the whole of that second chapter of 2 Corinthians is the reading. While it is true that Christians have a great Savior and one who is able to save them to the uttermost, which is recorded for us in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, it is also true that they have a very powerful and sinister adversary whose name is Satan. And 2 Thessalonians 2.9 tells us about his name. And this study is about the, this enemy of our souls. Now then, the church at Corinth was in a very carnal state and much disorder existed in the membership. And what they, they asked, well, what, what's God's ruling? And we might ask, what is God's ruling when Christians and church members fall into sin? It's quite clear from the word that church discipline is the thing to bring into activity. But at such times, the church is faced by two dangers. Now let me outline this. If, there, if we bring discipline, if we discipline people in the church, two great dangers come into the church. We don't like to hurt people, so the first danger is that we gloss over the sin and treat it as if it doesn't exist, or lightly and sweep it under the mat. The other thing, the other enormous danger, is this, that we refuse to forgive the relapse when the offending member has repented. Let me illustrate it by reminding you of a story I've told before, very briefly, and that is of a, a, a pastor and, uh, whose wife decided to fool around and she went off with another pastor and no one knew. Not the pastor whose wife did it, nor the um, wife whose, pastor, whose husband did it. N neither of the spouses knew, nor did the congregations know. No one knew what was going on. But one evening, uh, the pressure was brought to bear on the congregation to make a confession of sin, and the lady stood up and confessed her sin. Now that was a, a bit of a shock, because over the other side of town was the other church, and the pastor didn't know that his lover was making her confessions in church A, so over in church B he was going on with all that was happening, but you know what Christians are like. If you want anything told quickly through town, you tell a Christian and it's done. And so it got to their church before the, the service was over and all kinds of things broke loose. She, in her confession, repented but the people wouldn't allow her to stay in the church and drum the pastor who had not sinned and the wife who had sinned out of church and out of town. In the other church, though the pastor repented and tried to put everything right that he possibly could, was also disgraced and drummed out of town. You may say, well, rightly so. I'm not going to judge about that. I'm simply saying that the churches, both those churches are still talking about the incident and it's several years now gone by and they just will not accept that repentance was done. Now we Christians are guilty of this. 
we remember we've got elephant minds we don't forget we remember from way back and we bring it up we regurgitate it so Paul had these two dangers that were very real he had them both in mind I believe when he wrote and verse 11 he underlines as it were these two dangers he says lest Satan should get an advantage of us and we are not ignorant of his devices and he talks about the devices of Satan and these inspired well words tell us several things about Satan let's look at them there are three things one Satan is a real person don't let people fool you into pretending that the devil is a mythical character or monster something that Faust wrote about let's be careful that we understand that Satan is very real and therefore don't speak of him lightly Christians should avoid at all costs speaking of Satan lightly we should concern ourselves that he is a very real person you don't have to take my word for it come with me to Acts of the Apostles and chapter 5 and you'll discover in that fifth chapter that we ought to be very careful about speaking carelessly of Satan in fact we ought to be careful in speaking carelessly of any in the spiritual realm look at verse 3 of chapter 5 of Acts and Peter said Ananias why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost Satan filled your heart all that this man did and I know it's been done in this congregation and it's done in our hearts but the man pretended to bring all that he had agreed to give to God he pretended to give all instead of which he kept some back it's all he did and that's a minor sin amongst many of us these days but it was Satan that caused him to lie to no one less than the Holy Ghost notice the second truth that we can see from this it is this that Satan is an active person please understand that Satan is very active he is alive he does get on with his job which is pursuing and thwarting the things of God he's an active person what Paul was saying in this 11th verse is this that he can get an advantage of us he can take advantage of us Paul spoke of his devices his devices the word to be div, uh, to uh, of meaning device means literally two other words that we might be able to latch on to better he the word could have been translated maneuver or strategy the strategy of Satan the maneuvering of Satan we're not ignorant of his maneuvers we're not ignorant of his strategies and that's what Paul is saying and how active he is today behind the drama of the world events of, of the church and all that the church does and also in the individual child of God 
Look, at, look with me to 1 Timothy, please, and chapter 5 and verse 15, where we see these words. For some are already turned aside after Satan. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Timothy, you must understand some people are already turned aside to Satan. The third piece of teaching that comes out of this little verse is his activity is absolutely and wholly evil. It is wholly evil. He is very subtle and his methods are always diabolical. He sometimes reveals himself as a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 tells us this, Satan like a roaring lion goes around doing this roaring, seeking whom he may devour, whom he may scoop up his, his maneuver, his strategy, seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes he appears as an angel of light. Turn back with me to 2 Corinthians 11 uh, and the second chapter, no, 11th chapter, the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. And let's look just for a moment at verse 14, where we read, and uh, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He appears to be brilliant. He appears to be light. He appears to be Christian. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Satan appears to be light. Everything Jesus said he was, Satan appears to be. Jesus said that he was the light of the world. Satan, we see here, makes himself to appear like light. Now it's important that the fourth thing we see that the apostles taught was this. We are not ignorant of his strategies. His strategies. And what comfort to know that any ignorance we may have had is expelled first by the clear teaching of the Word of God and secondly our own personal experience that confirms the truth of God's mighty Word. Now if you look at all of this you'll see that there are three main spheres in which Satan today is operating. And I want to sort of lean on this rather hard because we have to see his operations are in three very distinct categories. The first category is in relation to the world and those who are unregenerate. All through the world we discover people who are unregenerate and all through the unregenerate world we discover Satan hard at work. The second area in relation to the church and therefore the work of God and this is frightening to think that Satan can get in to our assembly and disturb God's people and God's sheep. And thirdly, in relation to the individual believer. Now that's particularly disconcerting because Satan tries very hard with the individual and as he works with us as individuals, or at us as individuals, he causes all kinds of oppressive things to happen. I am not one of those that believes that if you're born again, you can be possessed 
by Satan or an evil spirit. I believe this, that you can be oppressed. To be possessed is to, be, is to have it coming from the inside, but to be obsessed is to have it coming from the outside. I believe that Satan does oppress people and they become obsessed by him. There is a very unhealthy attitude in the church. I've shared this several times from different angles before. But there's a very unhealthy attitude that says we need to know all about Satan. We don't. We need to be aware of his devices. We need to be aware of who and what he is. We do not need to know every tiny detail of how and when he operates. We should be real careful. Well, now what is it? that? And let's look at the first thing. Satan's method with the unsaved is a certain method. If you note the vast number of people in the world who are unsaved and are without God and therefore they are without hope. You can read that in, two, uh, uh, in um, Ephesians 2 and verse 12. And you can discover that these people are completely without hope. The, the apostle writes, At the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a tragic place. I see the world and my heart aches. I see our town and my heart aches. I see all around me lost people and there is a great yearning within me. I hope you see the lost state of our society and therefore this coming month on the 27th of this month you will pack cars and buses and be at the Billy Graham crusade. There should be such a yearning in our souls that we're prepared to take people to hear the gospel preached. It's an opportunity. There may be all kinds of reasons you don't want to bring them to church, but for whatever you do, for the gospel's sake, take them. Take them to hear God's holy word. Take them to have their souls refreshed, revived. Take them. Some of those, these people of whom I speak are religious. Most are respectable. And many are even churchgoers. I was recounting to someone the other day how when I first went to college in Wales after I went out of the army, I went to a college where there were lots of preachers and the preachers were preaching up and down the valleys of Wales and into England and as I sat and listened to these men I was convicted and convinced of one thing they had yet to be born again and I opened the scriptures to them and in six weeks introduced 13 of them to the Lord Jesus isn't that an alarming fact and how many in sitting in our churches are not born again they've had some religious oozing in their soul, some great moving of something or other, an experience, but never could they say they were born again. They're not in love with Jesus Christ. That's tragic because they believed something that is nothing. 
pew warmers and churchgoers are in multitudes and then there are multitudes of people that have never heard the gospel never heard the gospel when I went up into the Arctic and into northern Canada I was amazed how many people I would discover who had never heard the gospel never heard it children especially had never heard and there was a great burden in my heart <clears throat> but I'm not a missionary I'm a preacher and I would go tomorrow back up there if the Lord would only release me just because there are people I know who have never heard never heard I talked to some Indians once who believe in the great white spirit when I explained about sin oh they admitted they got plenty of that and when I showed them how it was they could never reach heaven as a result of of the fact that they were so unholy they agreed that they very likely couldn't when I explained to them that the great white spirit the great spirit in the sky he refused them entrance because he only had one door through which they could enter they were amazed tell us which door and I showed them and told them the story of the compassion and love of Christ there was excitement he became a door for them to enter in but they had never heard the story never Oh, some preacher had gone through and taken an offering. He must have been a Baptist. Some preacher had gone through and eaten all their food, but they had never heard. That bothered me. There are preachers that will fix people up when they're hatched, matched, and dispatched. But those preachers, when they get in front of the, the, the judgment seat, the beamer seat of Christ, are going to have an awful lot to answer for an awful lot so if you also go into Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 you have hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath even as others says the apostle now if you look at that you discover that the strategy and the objective of the devil is threefold and it comes out in three different words the first word is detention detention his method with the unsaved is to detain them the word makes it clear that every unregenerate person is in the captivity of Satan staying in Ephesians and looking at chapter 2 again look at verses 2 and 3 and you can discover they are captive captive you can also cross-reference that with 2 Timothy 2.26. Let me also challenge you with a second word. And that second word is a little more frightening. Because it is the word darkness. Detention and darkness go hand in hand. And Satan loves his strategy amongst the unsaved is to keep them in a darkness. A great terrifying darkness 
We read that he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of darkness. And his, he, his abode is in the realm of darkness. Look with me at Colossians 1 and verse 13. Where we read that who hath delivered us from the power, speaking of the Lord Jesus, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the, into the kingdom of his dear Son. We better be real careful. Satan's devices, Satan's strategy is to keep the unsaved in a dark place. See, if he can keep them in a dark place, if he puts on the guise of the lion, he roars and the roaring fills the whole area. The people panic and they rush into a lost eternity. Now there is the strategy or the method of Satan with the unsaved. Keeping them in darkness. He loves to keep men and women in darkness. Turn back to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, if you will in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that be which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He hath blinded the mind, and his strategy is to blind the mind. I urge you to be careful of intellectualism. It is a bad ism. Be careful of it. We sometimes do obeisance to intellectualism. I read just most of the modern authors, at least I read some of their volumes, and I have read everything that's on the bookshelves to date of Francis Schaeffer. And a lot of people say, isn't that wonderful? And I have to tell you this, I'm sure it is. It leaves me cold. I can't see what it, the points he's always making. Now, I'm not criticizing Mr. Schaefer, but what I'm saying to you is this. A lot of people who are not in the same intellectual bracket as Mr. Schaefer say well, how wonderful his books are, and all they've done is they've taken to themselves an intellectualism without comprehension, and they've been wasting an awful lot of time. I'm saying this to you. Beware of intellectualism. It puffs up the heart and makes a person proud. Be careful. Read. Never forsake reading. Read everything you can lay your hands on that will glorify the Lord Jesus. But always make sure that what you're reading appeals to your heart and your soul and you comprehend with your heart and with your soul and not just your mind. I used to belong to a debating society in a university in London. One of the easiest things in the world was to lead people into an intellectual battle and then let go and leave them stranded in the midst of the battle and walk off, as David instructed his men, to walk off and leave Uriah. You could take people into an intellectual discussion in the debating society and just dangle them. And they, because they were puffed up in their minds, walked right into the trap and were left. We used to do it to one another, most unkindly, I think, but we used to do it and do it deliberately. We try to outwit one another. 
Be careful of intellectualism. It's a very dangerous thing. Deal with your own mind where your mind is. Deal with your heart where your heart is. Deal with your soul where your soul is. Deal with Christ Jesus the Lord. Then there's another thing. Another word. It's distraction. See, the strategy of Satan is to be destructive. And Satan is planning the everlasting destruction of human souls. He plans that destruction. It's a well-planned destruction. You should understand it. We should all understand that he has worked out how to annihilate, how to destroy the souls of men and women. He's in a fury because God said, you're judged. The sentence is pronounced, but it doesn't go into action until my great love has been revealed to the world. It doesn't go into action. The sentence doesn't happen to Satan until God's great love has been expressed to the world. And Satan then has sort of taken the attitude, a dog in the manger attitude, if, you can't ha if I can't have it, neither can you. That's his attitude. And so he has planned your destruction. He has planned our destruction. And when we use the word saved, it means that a person who believes in Jesus Christ is saved from that planned destruction of Satan. And we desperately need to know that. Now the second thing is that Satan's method is with the church and therefore the work of God. And the church is the only bulwark of righteousness in the world today that stands against the devil. Therefore, therefore, he hates the church. He hates it. Now, some of you might get your backs up or your, the fur might just rise a little on the back of your neck. But let me share this with you. And if you think me critical, don't take my word for it. Go and study. But there is no platform for those that love Jesus Christ with the Roman Catholic. And I know that some of you are going to say, but I know some charismatic Catholics that are surely born again. And I'm going to say to you, they may be, I'm not going to criticize that. All I'm going to tell you is that they cannot be Roman Catholic and born again. The doctrine denies the born again experience. Oh, yes, it does. You see, the various things that took place in Rome, in the Vatican, in 1966, did not change the doctrine. The doctrine of Rome has not changed in over 400 years. And it still looks at you as an unrepentant sinner without hope because you don't belong to Mother Church and because you deny that you can pray to Mary, the mother of Christ, and because you deny that you can go to the canonized saints and worship the idols, because of that you have committed mortal sin. And there is no place in the church and therefore no place in heaven for you. That is the doctrine. All that changed in the Roman Catholic Church was their technique of hooking the born-again believer's imagination. 
Now, I'm not bashing just another denomination. I'm talking about a cult that appears Christian and never was. Never. It couldn't be. It borrowed too much of the occult. You see, when you worship the, 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 the God of Ashtaroth, you also have a mother of heaven. When you worship the God of Ashtaroth, you have the evergreen tree that we bring into our homes calling it a Christmas tree. You have the egg called the Easter egg that we bring into our homes at Easter. These come from the teaching of the worship of the God of Ashtaroth. The earrings that you wear so innocently are, the, are, are really reminiscent of the, uh, of the worshipping of the occult. The, the wearing of chains around our necks is the worship of the occult. The bracelets on our, on our wrists and arms is the worship, part and parcel of the worship of the occult. All of this. Oh, I know, we, we just take all that as fashion. But if you get down to the fine line, it's all worship of the occult. But it has been introduced through the Roman Catholic Church, historically. I see Vernon's making sure that Mildred gets her earrings off. I've told you once or twice before, I'll just tell you one more time, the word in Hebrew for earring is to whisper. And the idea was that a God going by wouldn't waste his time talking to the wrong person. And so they wore, for instance, if you believed in a cow god, they wore the figure of a cow. Or a fly god, the figure of a fly. Or, or a, a, a frog, or whatever the figure was, you wore that in your ear, and the god going by, he wouldn't waste time. The, the frog god wouldn't talk to the fly people. He would only talk to frog people. And they all wore jumpers, I expect, and things like that. And, and so the, they wouldn't waste their time talking. That's the background. Now, the Roman Catholic Church borrowed all of this and brought it all in. And they said, let's interweave the occult with Christian teaching, the biblical teaching. There is no such thing as an infallible human being. There is no possible way to be so barbarous as to say that the flesh of Christ the, 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 the bread that touches the tongue or the wafer turns into the literal flesh of Christ and the wine into the literal blood. Superstition. A superstition. Hey, the good news is there is no superstition. There is living faith in Christ Jesus. I have no right to, to lord it over you. None at all in the gospel. The only right I have in the gospel is to lead sheep to pasture. I have no right to lord it over you, though you tell me all your crimes, though you tell me all your crimes against heaven and against earth, though you tell me all the crimes that your heart have ever imagined, I have no right before God ever to remind you of those crimes. There is the difference between the minister of the gospel and the priest of the church. There is no place for such terrifying things. Satan's method with the church and with the people of God. Let me go on a little further and then I'll stop preaching and get back to the notes. We have allowed into our churches and into our teaching all kinds of worldliness. And that worldliness has sapped us of our strength. It has sapped us dry. 
Someone some years ago came in not content with the word Sunday school and changed it to Christian education. Now we need to be educated, there's no question. But beware lest we borrow the methods of the world to teach. Beware. Just let's be very, very careful. Oh, but there are other things. We have borrowed all sorts of teachings from the Mormon church, from the Jehovah's Witnesses. We have borrowed all kinds of things from every ism that's in the world and we've allowed it in. We've welcomed it. We have to be mighty careful because Satan has three things that, and three words describe what he wants to do with the church and with, it, with the people of God. First word is division. He wants to divide us. And he's done it very well. And there's a glorious illustration. It's called denominationalism. You see, the Lord Jesus, if you go to John 17 and verses 20 through 22, the Lord Jesus, in the great and wonderful prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, he said, Father, I pray that they shall be one. And Satan's prayer and activity has been, they shall be many. One in faith, in hope and doctrine. All one body we. Oh no, oh no. When the Holy Spirit was come, there was a wonderful oneness of heart and soul. Acts 2 verses 1 and verse 32 tell us that. There was an enormous oneness of soul and of heart. The Lord still desires this and he blesses unity wherever it exists. Read Psalm 133 when you get home with great carefulness and you'll be blessed. The second word under this heading of his method with the church and with the work of God is this, diversion. Diversion. Satan absolutely loves to, to get Christians and churches absorbed in secondary and secular things. Consequently today, a lot of churches are worldly and most of their programs are given to activities that may not be wrong in themselves. Don't misunderstand me. Their programs may not be wrong in themselves at all. But they're not channels through which the Holy Ghost can work and through which the Holy Spirit can let his gracious work take place. They're just activities. How the devil loves to keep us busy doing things so long as he can keep us out of the place of prayer and occupied with our work and our service and our results and our, 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 our competitions and all this sort of thing. If we can only keep up with all of that, somehow he can keep us away from the Lord Jesus. The third word is disaffection. Disaffection. Satan loves to sow discord. Discord among the saints is very well illustrated, I think, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 6. In verses 1 and 2, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, 
It is not reason that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. They murmured. They murmured. So they appointed deacons to solve the problem against the men of God. They, they, they appointed deacons and deacons to deek means to serve. To serve. That's Acts 6 verses 1 and 2. It's easy for almost every Christian to become unsuspectingly or unconsciously a tool of Satan. True. The most heartbreaking thing as a preacher I ever view is when a Christian becomes a tool of Satan. Cluck of the tongue, haughty attitude, snooty look, hardened heart, disparaging remark. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, we discover that we're to put on the whole armour of God and the only time we as Christians will be able to stand safely against the wiles of the devil, against the darts that he throws at us, the only times we can be safe is when we've put on the whole armour of God and therefore we have to put it on with prayer because there's no other way we can be safely protected from his attacks. Now the last heading is this, Satan's method with the individual believer. And I want you to look at this real carefully with me. Because we are attacked. There's no question about it. No question. God has a plan for us and every one of us has, has to seek the will of God and discover what that plan is. And as we discover the plan that God reveals in his own wonderful time, then we become stronger and strongest in the things of God. I want to share this with you very carefully because every time God's revealing his will to us in a specific manner, Satan will reveal the counterpart. Every time you think God is leading me in a straight and a narrow way, Satan will reveal to you another way and it will be as easy, if not easier, to take that way and to mistake God's will for your life. We make horrendous mistakes. We go in dreadful directions because the armor isn't put on with prayer. Satan's method with the individual believer comes up in three words again, and I'm going to share those three words with you. The first is disturbance. God's expressed purpose is that every one of his children shall have perfect peace. You knew that, of course, didn't you? Well, just to make sure that it's reinforced, go, come with me into Isaiah 26. Please turn there. The 26th chapter of Isaiah. And let's look at verse 3. 26th of Isaiah, verse 3. Please look there. Because it's a familiar verse that you will recognize very quickly. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Thou would keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusted in thee. That's God's expressed purpose for every Christian. What's Satan's? 
Satan is to unhinge that peace. If you go to Philippians 4 and verse 7, you discover that let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, that the peace that passes all understanding may resolve itself within your heart. When such peace is the experience of the children of God, their lives are characterized by poise and power and freedom from doubt and fear. That's when we are walking with our Lord Jesus. All of those qualities are there. But how often Satan upsets our peace, disturbs our poise, and robs us of power, and his whole objection is to get us down. Now that's a fact. That's a fact. Look at the next word, for it shows us the method of Satan with the individual believer. And it's the word disobedience. Missionary. I would not go but I became a preacher. But God's first choice for me was missionary. My choice for me was preacher. And here are people throughout the world who have listened to Dr. Alan Redpath who have absolutely worshipped the Lord Jesus because of his ministry and people that have received Christ because of this man's gigantic ministry and yet here he is saying, I am blessed, but I am blessed doing God's second best. I was first called to be a missionary. That is a frightening fact. Are you disobedient? The great tempter, Satan, works to make us disobey. He works at it and is very successful. The Lord wants us to be altogether His, so Satan keeps us half-hearted. The Lord wants us to be able to be decisive and active for Him, so Satan keeps us undecided with regard to the will of God and the work of God, and what a victory he has scored. For if I counsel ten people a week, nine of them tell me they're seeking God's will for their lives. Few people understand that where I am, what I'm doing right now is the will of God. And right now, I am to fulfill that will of God to the utmost of my ability so that if he wants me somewhere else, I'll not be ashamed to leave. I am to, to work so hard at doing and fulfilling the will of God where I am that I shall be a blessing to those around me. Very difficult, you see, because it's easier to be disobedient. Oh, it's tragic, I tell you. Every time the Lord calls us to obey Him, the devil calls us to disobey Him. Every time. Therefore, at every point of our lives, we have to make the choice. 
If you go to Joshua and chapter um, 24 and verse 15, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every time the children of God were in front of God the Father and in front of the leadership, they were none less the children of God, but they had to be told, you must choose this day whom you will serve. And we have to make that choice. The third word is the little word, it's defeat. Defeat. Ever been defeated by Satan? Oh, come now, start being honest with your heart. We all have. We all have. But Satan's method with the individual believer is to defeat them. If we are Christians, we no longer belong to the devil. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? If you're a Christian, you don't belong to the devil. We belong to the Lord by redemption rights, and 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that. But the enemy still seeks our downfall. He cannot rob us of our salvation. He cannot stop us from going to heaven when we die. But he does try to rob us of the heavenly experience, and God wants us, that, that heavenly experience that God wants us to have now, right here, in this world, in this life. He wants us to be living a joyous Christian life. But Satan will rob us of it. And he does. If you go to Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 through 21, you'll discover it. Written quite clearly for you. He cannot prevent us from reaching heaven. But he can bring such defeat into our lives that we will suffer loss when we get to the judgment seat. And if you don't think as a Christian you're going to the judgment seat, you don't know the Scriptures. Why the Scriptures tell us, and you may as well take a note of this in 1 Corinthians 3 and verses 11 through 15, that the Christian is going to come before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And we are there going to be told, or asked rather, for everything we've, been, we've done, everything we've said, we will have to give an account. An account. Now, says Paul, we are not ignorant of the devices we're not ignorant of what Satan does. We are not without understanding of the cunning craftiness of the arch enemy. In Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. He says, give no place to the devil. Don't allow him. Let us then give no place to the devil and let us rejoice that for this purpose, says 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Ladies and gentlemen, because we're trusting Jesus Christ as Lord, we are conquerors over the devil. We are not servient to the devil. But because I have spoken this way of Mr. Satan, He'll very likely try to nail my hide to the wall and maybe yours if you're agreeing with me. We may expect some movement if God is going to bless us in this place of Satan's devices. It was Moshe Rosen who said to me, Cyril, and this is just within the last year, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Moshe Rosen of Jews for Jesus 
had been accused of misappropriating funds and also of having some sexual contact with one of his secretaries. Both accusations were quite untrue. And Moshi put his arm in mine as we went into a restaurant to eat. He said, Cyril, Satan will attack you in two ways. If God is going to bless that church and if God starts to bless it and there is now pouring of his spirit on your ministry, you will be accused of sexual folly and you'll be accused of financial conniving. Tragic, isn't it? That the leadership of churches, God's men, amongst God's people, know that they're going to get clobbered with those two things. A few months back, maybe two years, Bill Gothard was charged, not by the world, not by lawyers, but by Christianity Today, by Eternity Magazine and Moody Monthly. And they were charged, and they charged him. They said that he was not working the funds correctly. They said that he was misappropriating funds. They said that of Billy Graham. They said it of Bill Gothard. When Bill Gothard's brother Steve was discovered to be doing things that were wrong sexually, you know what evangelical Christians said? If one brother's involved, it most likely runs in the family. I was in a meeting where the man said that. And I ached inside. What shame. Don't be ignorant of what Satan can do, but listen. We are more than conquerors because we don't belong to this world. We have been saved. We don't belong to this terra firma. We don't belong to this Satan. We have been born again. And now we're born again, we belong to Jesus, not just for the years of time alone, but for eternity. We are more than conquerors. Or if you like, we're on the victory side. No foe can haunt us, no fear can daunt us. We are on the victory side. But don't shut your eyes. And don't think Satan won't know about it. Don't feel for one moment that somehow you can get away with sinning and be immune because you can't. Trust Christ and Satan will run away from you. Turn from Satan. When you find yourself pivoting towards sin, leaning into sin, Run off, run away, turn your back, get out. And then, says the Bible, Satan will run away from you. He's frightened. When you turn to the holiness of Christ, he's frightened. He cannot bear to look at the holiness of Jesus. He cannot bear it. 
Well, now let's just pray. Most gracious Father, we thank Thee for this time together. We thank Thee for the loving kindness that Thou hast come into this world to redeem us and to captivate us and to give us the power and the poise and the sheer holiness to stand without the influence of Satan. Father, we ask especially that Thou would enter into our experience this day. Make us aware of the devices, very cunning that Satan has, and help us to turn from him into Thy marvelous light. We ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.